Hello and a very warm welcome to Be With Champions. This is a show with inspiring, entertaining and informative stories shared by the world's greatest athletes and high performers. You can learn how they got to the top of the world and how they've been able to stay there. Each episode will delve deep into the topics ranging from training and competition, nutrition, sleep and recovery to the mental strategies, all so important when building a strong person or team and everything else in between. Yes, I'm Phil Liggers and I commentated on Greg Bennett during his Olympic career and I'm here to introduce you to him. The man who was a world number one triathlete and has been at the very top of his sport. So here we go. Please meet your host, Greg Bennett. Take it away, Greg. All right. Today, an incredibly special guest, um, a very good mate of mine for the past 25 years and one of the most incredible athletes on the planet. Olympic gold medalist in 2000, Olympic silver medalist in 2008, Commonwealth gold medalist in 2002, I believe maybe 12 consecutive Canadian triathlon championship titles. He uh, carried the country flag at the closing ceremonies at the 2000 Olympics and then carried the flag again at the opening ceremonies of the 2012 Olympics. Um, He's a Canadian Sport Hall of Fame and probably one of the greatest Canadian Olympians of all time. Not only that, he's become a great speaker and one of the most articulate men I know. And uh, if anybody ever wants to listen to somebody deliver an incredible and inspiring speech, it's this man. Um, like I mentioned earlier, he's uh, 25 years, I think we've been together mates and we've, we've been, uh, you know, training partners and brothers in arms through some pretty tough times and some great times and nothing more than the journey into the uh, Olympic gold medal of 2000, which was Truly a career highlight of mine. So, welcome to the show, one of thanks. the greatest athletes on the planet, Simon Whitfield. Oh, thanks, it's good, to, it's good to chat with you, and you're bringing back memories already from Port Macquarie 25 years ago to all the adventures we had along the way and still have to go, so uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Seriously, it's like I think we met back in 93. I was, uh, was at Port Macquarie or Lake Macquarie, whatever, one of those Macquaries in uh, – the central coast of uh, New South Wales in Australia. And I remember just you needed a ride back to Sydney. And I don't think you, you could have been older than 17, 18. I'm like, <laughs> and uh, I gave you a lift home. And I'll, I'll never forget this young guy that just knew more about the sport and the details and the uh, of so many athletes. You, you were so into it at such a young age and it blew me away. Yeah, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in, as a triathlete in a sense. I, play, I played a lot of soccer and hockey, but from 11 years old on, I I dreamed of triathlon each and every day. And then to be in Australia and uh, get a lift home from a professional triathlete named Craig Bennett <laughs> was quite a thrill. I, I can uh, I still remember your car, the Grog Bog. <laughs> the Grog Bog. I can't believe it made it back from Lake Macquarie. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the, that was the state of being as as we uh, back in the day, and you know, it was uh, who knew twenty five years later we'd be doing this. So, so, so let, let's let's actually wind that clock right back, and like you just touched on, and when did you sort of first find your passion for endurance sports? Um, I was always the kid that was knocking on the other kids' doors, saying, "Come out to play," and your homework's done. Just tell your dad it's fine. Um, and so I, you know, I had quite a reputation as like the endless energy kid. Um, I ran in elementary school. I played a lot of pickup sport. I played hockey and soccer and badminton and all those fun things. 
Um, and then one day just went to the Sharbert Lake Triathlon with uh, family friends and just thought, what is this? This is fantastic. Outdoors, adventure. Uh, the endurance aspect didn't uh, dawn on me at the time. And now, uh, you know, I think back to how fundamental that is to just who I am now. Um, and just, a real, yeah, I had a real love of sport and had a real, and I had a very healthy appreciation for it or relationship with sport where it wasn't a mad dash to just win. It was, uh, it was a real love of just participating and being involved and applying myself. And I think that helped me for, as, as always helped me years for years to come. I know it's, you're one of those guys even now, I think has a tremendous amount of energy. Um, you know, you always had that want to go out and do more and, be busy but what year was it when you kind of said okay i'm uh you know i'm gonna do it, my first triathlon how old were you uh, i was 11 years old and then but it really kicked in when i was 15 and then i moved to australia when i was 16 from kingston ontario so you know a little lakeside town in canada to <laughs> sydney australia the harbor bridge uh a boarding school and the opportunity to be around, uh, you know, I was in a pool where Alexander Popov, the great one, 50 and 100 meter Russian swimmer and, uh, had trained. And, uh, so I could just, all of a sudden I was immersed in it. And then, uh, the experience with the Balmoral triathlon club within a year, I was training with you and Chris McCormack and Craig Alexander. And, um, it was, you know, I was, I was just immersed right into it. And, uh, that, that set me up for all, everything that happened later, you know, began because I, my parents, I suppose, had the courage to send their kid off to the other side of the world to go do this thing he loved to do. Mm. Was there a, was there a moment in that time where you thought, okay, I'm passionate about it. Was there a moment where you were like, wow, I'm, I actually have some ability at this. I, I've got some strengths and talent in this kind uh -huh. of area. I laugh because I say so I have much earlier than that. I have this funny memory of, uh, so Ted Jennings and my closest friend growing up who lived across the street from each other. And inevitably when, when your best friend has an older brother, you know, you're quite intimidated and look up to this funny combination of looking up to and being intimidated by their older brother. And, mm -hmm. and so you always want to impress them, you know, you want to be accepted and you want to be kind of one of the boys. And so I remember riding, uh, we would ride these banana seat bikes around the block and we would race around. And one day I got in a race with, with the older boys and came back first. And, and I got accused of cutting through the alleyway. And I remember thinking, huh, I didn't cut through the alleyway, which means maybe I'm kind of good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I just beat Jake. Um and that really like those little moments, you know, that you mm. just kind of, they ingrain in you this, this self-belief and this kind of like you, it just opens your mind to the possibilities and you go, huh, maybe I'm kind of good at this. Yeah. It's like those little pats on the back or what just keep feeding your desire to keep wanting to improve and do more. I, I had similar with mates growing up in, you know, Balmoral Triathlon Club and uh, Scott and Tim Smallwood, the Smallwood family were kind of the iconic family of Balmoral Triathlon Club. They had all the gear, they were right into the sport. And and I was kind of riding bikes with, you know, I had electrical tape for handlebar tape and, you know, my bikes were pretty, no, they were good enough, but it was kind of like I always had this second second hand gear and I was like, hang on, I'm able to sort of beat my mates. And, and a part of, you know, when I talk to a lot of athletes is it often starts with just beating up on your mates. And 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 what, what's funny, I mean, if we, we push all the way forward and we'll come back in a second, but 
you know, going into 2000 Olympics, you and I were very good mates and all you did was beat up on me for three to four months and then go win the gold medal. And it was kind of like, hang on, if you can beat the people closest to you, maybe, you know, you'll progress to higher levels than, it, than you ever thought you could before. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think one of the distinctions that I, or the advantages I had as a kid was I, something I didn't appreciate for years until years later until I had kids, which is when I came home from events, mom and dad never asked me how I did. They asked me if I put in a great effort. And it's a really funny little subtle thing. Mm. It just gave me this, you know, I don't know, this belief or this like support that was unconditional. It was said, mm -hmm. if you put in a great effort and you express your gifts and you express the work that you do, then we're good with that. And whether you finish first or 30th, we, we're, we're really more interested in how much uh, of yourself you put into it. And do you have the courage to give all of yourself to something? And um yeah that that really stuck with me for years i would feel like i could go to events and and not you know all the way back to home which is the like you know when mom's making a chicken noodle soup when you're sick mm -hmm. um it it would affect you in that way of like saying well it doesn't really matter you know i'm gonna go home and if i just put a great effort in today um it's life carries on um and that really made that made a deep impression on me well i think having that really supportive family system um is such a, a huge step forward for any young athlete and supportive in the sense, like you said, there was, there was no expectation. There was no pressure on delivering a performance. And, and even, you know, they, you wanted to go to Australia. Was that your idea or their idea in terms of trying to better yourself as an athlete, or you just wanted to experience Australia? Uh, I think I was just going for a year, a year on exchange and okay. uh, came home I don't, I never, never kind of never came home again. I moved out West, uh, Western Canada after that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure my mom wasn't super thrilled that I never came home again, or maybe she was. Um, but yeah, that, that, you know, I, like I said, I was very engaged in it. I was very focused early on and there was this expectation. You know, I called, I, I showed up at the boarding house and I, I went into the headmaster's office and he, and he told me that he had his expectations that I would win all of the events and break the school records. And I remember calling my, my folks on the calling card on the payphone and saying, you know, like, I can't believe what the headmaster just said. And mm. my folks actually being like, well, too, too bad. You know, that's welcome to the world of a professional athlete. You want to go to the Olympics? Well, the headmaster's at least your worries. And, and it's that in itself was also a great lesson. It was like, well, it's, we're going to support you either way and we and we we will applaud and, and work towards you know this the effort you put in but also you got to deliver you know mm -hmm. for the outside beyond us like if you really want to participate in that and qualify for things and and get the places you go then pressure is part of that so you know um saddle up buttercup and get going and it was <laughs> it was a very aussie mentality and it really helped me i had a really nice balance of that you know canadians and australians are different we have different risk tolerances and with it comes advantages and disadvantages and one of the things i learned from an aussie dad and then from an aussie culture and was to, to you know jump in the pool jump in the deep end and get after it mm. and aussies are not risk averse uh canadians are very much uh can be as a generalization quite risk averse mm. and so mm. i i got the benefit of that that kind of dual perspective and so Australia, because your dad was Australian, is that why you went there or was it because of the sporting culture? Uh, yeah, it was my dad's. It was the opportunity. We had the opportunity because we knew 
uh, people at the school. It was the school he'd gone to. He grew up in Taramara in the suburbs there of Sydney. And mm-hmm. it was not a chance. I, you know, honestly, I went there very much enamored with Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. I had a, a kangaroo with the boxing gloves on the wall, you know, mm-hmm. and as a kid. And I wanted all, I knew how to play cricket. I knew how to play rugby. Uh, all things Aussie. And when I got to the boarding house there, it was different. It was, I grew up in a very multicultural city in Kingston. And my, my close friends as kids were, you know, Egyptian, Fijian, Japanese. And I went to a boarding house that was very much divided. There was one side for Caucasian Australians. And there was another side of the boarding house that was for others. And that right away, I, I, I didn't synchronize with that. I couldn't understand that. I couldn't mm-hmm. relate to that. And so uh, I have a great deep uh, admiration for Australians, and I understand that the journey of Australia is different than other countries. But that piece right there said to me, uh, "Wait a minute, I maybe I'm more Canadian than I thought I was." <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a that's a pretty big cultural difference, isn't it, between the two countries? I mean, I I've spent some time obviously with you in in Victoria, Canada, and and um, know a number of Canadians and have trained and raced up there and. I would I would have to say that Canadians tend to be some of the most open people I've ever met. Um, Australians tend to be, I don't know if judging is the right word, but we do tend to put people in their little, you know, pigeonholes and that's where they stay and, and we're maybe less open, whereas I found Canadians were incredibly welcoming and, and incredibly open to other cultures. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Aussies are very thick skinned too. I remember early on in the boarding house and then with you later, you know, it was a culture, there was a bit of culture of take the piss, take the piss out of each other. And, <laughs> and that's, there's, there's a healthy aspect to that too. You know, we've moved now maybe so far the other way that we've, we've gentle, uh, gentle, <laughs> we made it so gentle that we become quite fragile and Australians are anything but fragile. You know, they're, the epitome of anti-fragile. Um, and so with that comes a bit of a harder edge at times. And, and I had at times I had trouble relating to that, but I also, at times I was able to, or I've able, I've been able to kind of understand that and, and meet somewhere in the middle. So yeah, it was a great experience. You know, it's, uh, I was very privileged to be able to do it. That's not lost on me, you know, mm. for, for my folks to, Take it alone and send their kid off to Australia was is quite remarkable. I look now at all the stresses we have and today, and I think, oh my goodness, if I had to send my my daughter off in four years to a different country and and just kind of wish her good luck, I I, I know why my mom was bawling her eyes out at, at Syracuse Airport. <laughs> well, I'll never I'll never forget when I you know like I we mentioned at the start of the show and. Here you were in Lake Macquarie. You'd just done this race, and you needed a lift back to Sydney. I don't know how you got up there um, to do this race, but here you were, and I was dropping you off at Hornsby, I think you were, or Tomorrow, somewhere up yeah. the northern suburbs of Sydney. And I, I think I even you might have even did you stay with us for a little bit? I think I was living at my folks at the time, and you yeah, might have I, even come come back. Tomorrow Club, Club took me in. I mean, yeah. I I took a train up to that race. It arrived at night rode through the country in in the dark with a flat tire on my disc my old disc wheel and uh sat around at the whatever that lake macquarie race was having not done very well watching the awards ben bright yourself and you know a bunch of people went on to be aussie legends and just went over and introduced sat kind of sat down by a group of people that i recognized the local club name of 
And uh, yeah, it took a lot. You know, it made me very uh, independent and mm. able to travel on my own and to arrive in Australia as a 16-year-old on my own and not see my folks for a year. Uh, you know, it's not the hardest thing anyone's ever done, but it was uh, it was different. No, but it makes and, you resourceful. And the one yeah, thing exactly. that I've I've seen with you for 25 years is you've always been resourceful, whether that's finding the right gear, training partners or experts to support you in, in your endeavors. You've always had the ability to reach out and bring the best to you. Um, and they want to be there with you. It's not like a, a command approach. It's kind of like a, a gentle nudge that, hey, let's do this journey together. And I think that's, you know, if you go back to when you were 16, that was probably what, you know, started your ability to actually build strong teams around you because you know you and I both know you can't get to the top of the world on your own it it takes a team and and I think your parents to having having the strength of parenting it's like to be able to send like you said a 16 year old son away to really from Toronto to Sydney you really can't get much further apart and and I agree I mean Sydney's not the worst place in the world to be sent to um but at the same time it was definitely foreign to you and um and just a huge um, learning lesson. And, and I think when you look back at your life, you could, you'd have to say that, wow, that was really one of those times in life that I really had to man up at a very young age. And um, But it also is probably what made you the man you are today more than anything. It's interesting because there's, there's, there's a bit of twenty twenty hindsight in there. And then uh, there's one, I don't know if you're, you're not glossing over it, but it's interesting because I haven't, a slightly different perspective on the bringing people together. I realized in the years since I retired that the so it was said of it was said of a someone a, someone close to me. It was and it wasn't said in an endearing way. It was they said that they they were a leader, not a king. It was an old business partner of mine, and they said mm-hmm. he's a leader, not a king. And I didn't really understand what the person meant. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay. I I thought being a leader was good and. You know, the connotation of being a king isn't, isn't good. And so I, I reflected on it for quite a while. I said, well, gosh, you know, they didn't mean that in a really positive manner. And then I came to realize and asked around and come back to that person. So, you know, what, what do you mean by that? Is that a leader in this case, in that example, and it's very much reflected of the way I behaved, was says, come, come, with, come with me. I know where I'm going. You clearly don't. And a king or a queen leaves safe space for others to prosper, provides safe space for others to prosper. And that's a reflection and something I've very much worked on over the last many years is to say, oh, whoa, like my, the environment that we created, although it was high performance, although it, it, we were successful, it actually wasn't particularly safe space. And it wasn't intentional. We just didn't have the leadership or the people around us to help us. You know, we had to learn that the hard way. Mm-hmm. But it very much revolved around like, well, we know what we're doing. You, you, there's the scoreboard. You know, we've got these results. You should come and train with us. You don't quite know what you're doing, obviously, because you're looking for somewhere new to be. So therefore, we'll we'll show you the way. But you better get in line and understand like this is our these are our mottos. This is how we roll. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't particularly, or if any, safe space for which others to prosper. And that that would be, I don't have any, you know, that's that's the the lessons you learn and the things you have to you, you reflect on and go, I need to do better. But that would certainly be what came of that was I was pretty ruthless about 
that uh, that approach. I was good at bringing drawing people together. I was good at finding resources and expertise, but I did it in a manner that I, on twenty twenty hindsight, which is you know whatever, it's fine. But I did in a way that really implied to others that they should come and work with us because we knew what we were doing and they didn't. And mm. if I, I don't know if I could change anything. It doesn't, you know, there isn't that ability. But now what I work towards is trying to catch myself before I say, well, you know, clearly we know what we're doing. I, I'm trying to be much more just like, well, wait a minute. This is safe space in which others can prosper. This is, these are the skills I bring. I do my best. I contribute. And I recognize the skills you bring and and I recognize that you, you know, you or you, you, you might want to do it differently and I'm okay with that. I don't need to bulldoze over the way you do things. And that's been a, the, my learning in the last, well, since, since I retired. Yeah. And I, I think it's amazing what we do learn since we retire, but I think, uh, you know, when, again, it's all 2020. And I think if we look back and, you know, for me, like I've sort of mentioned at the top of the show, one of the, really my career highlights was, um, working with you into the 2000 Olympic Games. And just to put that all in context is, you know, I, I'd been, you know, number two in the world and um, missed the Olympic Games through a, a court case and everything in, in 2000. And I was pretty despondent and bewildered with the whole sport and didn't know whether I wanted to retire or continue. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, you reaching out a hand, which served us both. It served you in a way that you'd get, a great training partner when you said, you know, come and train in Victoria, Canada with me. And it served me because it changed the environment. I changed coaches. I moved to a culture that was, like I mentioned earlier, it was very opening and, and very accepting. Um, and I got my passion back for the sport that had been somewhat lost for a couple of years. It had become work. And when I moved with you to Victoria, Canada and used Lance Watson as a consultant to help my own career, um, you know, that was a you got to remember, uh, you were 24, 25, I think. Mm -hmm. I was 27. We both had very large egos that we were both trying to trying to manage but also keep fueled. I mean, you, you, we needed those egos in order to, to ask of ourselves what we were trying to get. Um, you know, and I'm always a huge fan of having big egos. I just want you to, you know, learn how to manage it. And I think there was that little bit of we hadn't learned fully how to manage our, our, our egos and our expectations. And I think when you look back, you go, yeah, we were still young. We were fresh. And um, and, I, and I think when you look at I, – I love that desperation in athletes. I actually look at a lot of athletes now that may, might want me to consult with them or coach them. And I want to see that desperation and desire because I believe that that is a, a difference maker. Mm -hmm. But there is a manner that I want to see somebody have the maturity to um, – to manage that. And uh, I think you and I both matured over the 20 years or so, you know, we trained so. and raced each other. But yeah, we were definitely. That though, ask of yourself. You're right, eh? It's, that's what you're doing ultimately. You ask yeah. yourself to step up to the task. You ask of yourself to lean into it. That's yeah. I think I really feel for Lance Watson, who's just a wonderful person and wonderful coach. You know, he's done incredible things in Canada and um, with with triathlon. And but I still look back and think, oh, the poor guy. He had to work with you and I for <laughs> the lead into two thousand, and then you know, post two thousand, your Olympic Games, and then I went on to win the world number one a couple of times, and and then into two thousand and four, and all the emotions that we both brought. You know, because we were both desperate to do something great and uh 
I think I sometimes feel like we downloaded on him maybe a little more than we should have. So there's an apology to you, Lance. <laughs> what amazes me is I realize now how young he was. I thought of him, you know, yes. him as being older, but I'm like, oh, whoa, you were only, th- he was 30. He was two years older than me. 30 yeah. trying to with all these twits. So. Oh, no. It's an so, interesting experience with coaches. I look back now and I see who my coaches were and who my trainers were. Mm, I have a different too. relationship with each of those coaches. And I, I've grown to have enormous respect for the, the you know, it's just a funny name. So Barry Shapley. I've known Barry since I was 15 years old. He's the Nash. He started uh, triathlon in Canada, the Ontario Triathlon Association, and then Triathlon Canada. And for years, I would have said, oh, he was a manager. I, would, I said, oh, yeah, Barry was a manager. He wasn't a coach. Now I realize he was actually such a fantastic coach because mm. he understood the longevity of it. You know, here's a guy like I, my, my, my other coaches, trainers, I, I have good relationships with some of them. I have good, you know, I stay in touch with some of them. Um, but Barry, I, I talk to Barry once a month and have for, for 30 odd years. And he inquires if he doesn't hear from me and he mm-hmm. follows up. And I have, I've started to, I've gained an enormous amount of respect for the fact that he saw it not just as a, a, a small chapter where he was a contributor, but he saw it as a full book, you know, mm-hmm. here for the long haul. And it really, I find that, I found that really touching with, with a guy like Barry, who, who for all of his, you know, he's this wonderful character. Um, and, and yet as an individual, as a person, he, he cares deeply about the people that he, that he coaches and works with and has worked with over the years. And not just in a do this run today or, you know, or let's debrief from that race yesterday, but like haven't heard from you for a month, checking in, hope all is well. And that really speaks to me as what a role of a coach versus a, a trainer might be. I don't know if I'm using the definitions right. No, it's it's really well put. I think, like you said, I think Barry Shepley is one of those guys that keeps the the passion alive for the sport of triathlon. I think you see a lot of people that blast in and out of the sport and they take what they can from it and and then they leave, whereas someone like a Barry Shepley and there's, there's numerous Barry Shepleys out there that are just incredibly yeah. passionate people that, like you said, care deeply about the people they work with. They care deeply about the entire sport. Um, for those that don't know, Barry Shepley was the voice of ITU, uh, the ITU world series triathlon for, I don't know, was it 20 years? I don't, I don't know the actual numbers. I'm making them up, but just knew the details about every athlete. He, he was you could tell through the way he commentated for all those years he was just passionate about the athletes and the sport and they're the kind of people that when you hit your low times when you when life isn't rosy they're the ones that help keep you back on your feet and on your track and and like you said whether we call them coaches or life mentors or or whatever it is we we need to be surrounded by people like that you know yeah you want people who stay on the stage that's it eh? Mm. like Mm. when when the when the theater of life is not is not super rosy. Do they exit stage left or, or, and, and appear when it's rosy again, or do they sit, stay on stage? And, you know, if the tomatoes are getting thrown, do they take one in the head for you? <laughs> um, you know, Barry's taken a couple tomatoes for me. And I, and I, I've grown to appreciate that over the last, over the years, because he stays in touch. He, he mm. makes the effort and that really, that's meaningful. It's more, 
it's easy to say those things, but to actually follow through. And that's where those deep, you know, those deeper relationships come from. you very through the, through thick and thin is, isn't just an expression. No, for sure. Let me just wind back the clock one more time. Um, when was it in your career that you were like, okay, I'm going to go all in and this is what I'm going to do? You know, we, we've discussed the fact that you you found your passion when you were 11. You 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 recognized you had some strengths around the same age when you, you know, you beat up on your neighbors on the bike. But was it at what point in your sort of career did you say, right, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to pull the trigger and, and this is it? Oh, it's Knox Grammar School. It's walking up the drive on day one in a, on the other side of the world from where I grew up, um, walking into the pool where the coaches is, here's my accent and says, where, where in the world are you from? I, and I say, Oh, I'm from Canada and I, I'm here to, I'm here cause I want to go to the Olympics. And he says, all right, well jump in the pool <laughs> and Chuck Arden, you know, he was a great coach because this young Canadian kid, he didn't even know was going to show up, showed up and was a terrible swimmer. I, I was in with the, mm. like, I was swimming with the, I don't know, 12, 13 year old girls where my 16 and 17 year old peers are eight lanes over. <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't flinch. He didn't say that's, that's, that's rich. He didn't say, he didn't give me some grand speech. He just said, get in the pool. Let's do the work then. Let's see where this goes. And I, I've never, I haven't seen Chuck for, well, since 1993, I suppose. But I don't know if this guy knows that like that was so powerful because it was like, oh, okay, cool. Like you can talk all about it all you like and you can say, oh, I'm going to do this and that. And you can write it down your notebook and you can project, project, project. Um, but at the end of the day, he kind of just, he, he was, it was such a beautiful metaphor. He was like, oh, okay, cool. I'll get in the pool. Like what you've heard so far, then make sure you never miss a podcast by clicking the subscribe button now. This show is only made possible by you, the listener, and if you'd like to support Greg, please visit the Be With Champions Patreon page. Your support, very much appreciated. Now, back to the show. I'll never forget you swimming, and I've just got a quick little side story because you, you touched on the swimming, and, and I'll never forget when we were training together, I guess it was 94, 95, um, and I'd pick you up in the grog bog, my car, and we'd, we'd go off to swim squad, and and you were you were down a couple of lanes for, for several years there. And I'll never forget, I don't know, was it Kitzbull World Series race? <laughs> what was that, 2010 or something? Yeah, yeah, let out of the water. I was went so out of the tent, you let out of the water in a World Series triathlon. And 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 this is up against, just so people understand, the, the kind of swimmers that are, are in our sport and, and in 2010 were guys that were swimming, you know, the low 16 minute for 1,500 metres that were, were just off Olympics, you know, for their own country and swimming. And and here's you. I, I actually look back and think that was one of the career highlights for you because yeah, you yeah. – I think you had a natural ability. You were a beautiful runner, one of the most one of the most pleasing people to watch run. You know, I think tech, technique wise, you had a very pleasing stride to watch, and you were a very comfortable runner. Um, but you swim, you know, you think about it. That, that's like a how many years was that? That was like a seventeen year push to get to that point where you you're leading a World Series swim out of the water and. I think that's a great story of perseverance right there because <laughs> I'll never forget. I don't <laughs> – so tell funny. me if I'm wrong with your swim times, but 
could you break 40 seconds for the 50 meters or something? I don't remember. I remember just thinking, God, this kid wants to be an Olympic. And <laughs> I, I, could, I could sprint early on, but I couldn't maintain anything. I mean, I, even till the end, I couldn't, I don't know if I could break, I don't think I could break 430 long course for 400. Um, but I knew how to navigate in open water. I had an athleticism, I think, from playing so much basketball, hockey, soccer that I understood intuitively the the dynamics of a pack, the like mm-hmm. where the spot was, no one to hold them, no one to throw them, you know, like mm-hmm. I kind of knew I had a lot. I wasn't just a linear athlete running in a straight line and, and you, you couldn't get away with it now that the level is just continuously risen. But back then you could, and if in Kitzbühel you're on the right hand side and you're because you're ranked pretty high and you get a perfect start spot and you're Javier Gomez and you can kind of know how to sit on the right feet and then mm-hmm. you're determined that one day you're going to win the swim <laughs> frame. Um, yeah. <laughs> how was can, how was the rest of the race, by the way? How'd you go at Kitzbühel that year? I can't even remember. I okay, I, I won in Kitzbühel one year and I DNF'd him one year, so. I don't know what that year was, but it didn't matter. I'd already accomplished what I, I highlighted there by by coming out of the water first. <laughs> you know, it's funny though. You said you're referring to Chatswood Pool back in the day, and I remember looking out the window at five fifteen in the morning, the little portal window on the third floor in um, <laughs> off Road, yeah. and seeing you in the and I was like, I kind of wanted to sleep in, but I never slept in. And now I had this like big brother who was picking me up and, and getting me to the pool and I wanted to keep up with you so badly. So I have this funny image of like what it must have looked like to you to see this little head pop up in the portal oh. window and be like, <laughs> I'm to- coming, I'm coming. <laughs> I'd be on the horn tooting, waking yeah. up the neighbors at 5.15, get out here. You'd be jumping out of bed. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Talking. So mm-hmm. along the way, like I touched on, you, you, you've had to build teams, um, I like to talk about a team in terms of both family and people that are close to you and also a team of experts, you know. Can you tell us a little about a little bit about your teams that you had, you know, throughout your career and the importance of them to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said before, I had great coaches and trainers, um, which made up your, like, you know, show up at work team. Um, and from there, we had terrific support staff, whether they were, our chiropractor, Rob Havistagawa, who, you know, was the ultimate of elbow grease, just get whatever job needed done, get done, hmm. uh, through to sports physiologists and, uh, et cetera. Um, but at home I had a great team. I had terrific, I had I alluded to before I had great support from my folks, but, hmm. uh, my partner and the mother of our children, Pippa and Evelyn, Jenny and I were a terrific team. You know, we, she was so systematic. She is so systematic in her approach to the day to day. She's a details-oriented person. She's uh, relentless in her own manner, and she's an incredibly bright individual. So I had at home um, someone who understood me, understood how I ticked, uh, knew when to to push back, and uh, supported me in a manner, supported us in a manner that we were we were an incredible team from 2002 straight through for for a decade. Mm. Uh, through to London and we had our ups and downs and and since then we've become we're co-parents now with uh, each with their own with different you know separate different partners and to this you know this morning we met up outside we walked our daughter to school and we connected on the week to come and all we lead 
separate lives, but we're still a team. And so I would say when you come all the way back to it for the bulk of my career, outside of, you know, my family and the coaches and the people, at the end of the day, the person I came home to each day and, and had to put up with the, the, the other side of all of that, you know, the venting and the self-doubt and the, the melancholy of all of that. Um, well, the general fatigue that goes with being a professional yeah. athlete. I, I think and the, like all of this ridiculous sacrifices. No, I'm sorry. We can't go. I can't go to that. I can't go out with that. Oh, I can't go out for friends with friends for dinner. I've got that mm. session tomorrow. I'm too tired. I can't mow the lawn. I'm so tired. Mm. Um, you know, she put up with all of that stuff. So yeah, when I come back to it, that was kind of the, the central figure in, in, in the team and, and for the rest of our lives, that will be that way as we, we have these two wonderful daughters that we have no idea what we're doing with. <laughs> Nobody does, mate. Nobody does. That's my yeah. favorite thing about walking the kids to school. Is like you go to the school and you stand there, and my kids are one of my daughters is still in elementary school, and, and Pippa's you now in middle school where you don't walk your kids to school. But in elementary school, you walk your kids to school, you look at all these other parents, 40, 50 other parents dropping them off. I know maybe five or six names, I know 10 or 15 other faces. And all of us are looking at each other like, oh, you don't know what you're doing either. Like, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so like double thumbs up emoji on with your day. I'll see you later. And yeah. I really like that. I'll really miss it. Evelyn's got one more year of school. And I, I will say that one of the highlights, absolutely, I come back to every time is just walking your kids to school or picking them up. Oh. And not only look at their faces and then like sending your kids onwards to their day or hearing about their day, the rose and the thorns, but just looking at these other parents that – have no bloody idea what they're doing either. And it's, it's reassuring. It's comforting. Misery loves company. <laughs> totally. Like, oh, bro. I, yeah, me too. I have no yeah. idea. And I have a couple, there's these two or three guys that I know their, you know, I know their first names. I have no idea what they do. And we actually always just talk about, we, if we find each other, we always talk about our favorite video games as kids, like Donkey Kong and Mario Kart. And it's just this little moment, that's like a break in the day that we just there's no other expectation but to talk about donkey Kong, and it's it's so reassuring that they're that they're there and I'll, I'll certainly i'll find other people that are like that or maybe those same people but that's that certainly keeps me ticking day to day <laughs> so when going back to the the team sort of thing you went to four olympic games you know with, with obviously a gold medal at your first which you know i think surprised many many people i think you and i both knew when you when you headed down two weeks before the games that you were in amazing shape and um i for one wasn't you know overly shocked when i saw you you win the race there but then you went on to 04 um and i think was 10, 11th um then backed it up eight years later with an incredible silver medal um before beijing and i remember racing you in new york a few weeks before maybe three or four weeks before Beijing and and you weren't in a confident place you were with a new coach and you're unsure of the taper that he was putting you through um Joel Filiol was your coach and and then 2012 was it was a fourth Olympics and and f to some degree you almost had different teams going into each of those did you? you was there a big difference between each of those teams and and were you at the helm of each of those teams or were you somewhat letting go as the years went on and letting people take over more or was it the other way around? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, the, the best, the, the, I don't know, the metaphor for it or the like the epitome of it would be that, that where we trained. So before the Sydney Olympics, we trained at crystal pool, which is 
pretty, you know, it's an older pool, let's say it's, uh, it's got a very eclectic clientele. Uh, it's, uh, not the most modern pool. And then, and we had success from there and we had limited lane space. We had, we didn't have all the bells and whistles. We then had all this money come into the system. We were able to rent the lanes at the big fancy Commonwealth pool and, you know, our team unfolded and we unraveled, um, we had all of the resources and we had no idea what to do with them all. And we had all of the pressure and we had no idea how to handle it. And we, we just absolutely combusted as a team. And then we went back to crystal pool for four years. Um, we were, we were essentially, um, you know, kind of quietly asked to leave the, the, the center and Joel set up his training squad and we, we were kind of the lone wolf squad. We went back to the basics and we had success and then we got the whole influx of money and attention and opportunity to do as we wished and we went back to commonwealth pool (laughs) 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 are you kidding (laughs) yeah you know and it's just the way it goes there's so it's so easy to see now that that trend of how that goes you know and and i was in defense of that crew in in 2000 like paul and lance and i and neil we we just didn't know how to handle we had no mentors we had no one from the sports organizations in fact we had a lot of people kind of saying you know sitting back going like well let's watch this unfold and and we became we climbed the we climbed the mountain and then you find out at the top of the mountain that that you have a certain group of people that are there to continuously support you and and work with you but then you have a they come out of the woodwork you know as soon as as soon as you're perceived to be in control and then those it becomes you become a bit of a meme you don't become a bit of a meme you completely become a meme mm-hmm. and the stories they that they're told about you and your squad and the people around you they grow and they the truth is lost so far gone and for years i didn't understand any of that and then years later went oh wow like you weren't mad at me you weren't upset at me you were upset at that this caricature of me, this avatar you made up with, with a bunch of stories that aren't even right or sort of right, or don't appreciate or have any empathy for what we went through. And I'm, 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 you know, I do that too. I have my own caricatures of other people, but from that perspective, I just really, when you're so illuminated, you're so, you're pushed to the top of the pedestal, you, it's a, it's difficult. And, uh, we struggled through that. I, I've, tr- I've tried to write about it. I, I have something written. I just don't know how to publish about life beyond the pale, you know, where, and I've used you and Laura, uh, as an example of people that I used to meet at six fifteen, I think every morning at Starbucks mm. and we would sit and then get about our day. And then Sydney happened and then all of a sudden you guys were still meeting at Starbucks at 6.15 and I wasn't there because I had other things I had to do. Mm. And then I came back to there and you were accepting of me. You were welcoming, of course, here you, but there was something that changed, you know, like something, uh, I existed a little bit between these worlds of the people who were ornamenting me or applauding me and the people that I actually belonged with. And so you lose a real sense of belonging. You kind of exist in this never, never land between where you're the people that are celebrating you uh, on the other side of uh, adulation is isolation. And I don't think that that's really spoken about much, but that certainly I go off to this event, they would celebrate the medal. I would feel a little bit like I didn't even need to attend. I could just put the medal up on the stand and then people would cheer and say stories about it. 
But then I came back and I missed 6.15 in the morning with you. And then you were a little bit like, hey, bro, like life goes on here. I've got my day-to-day to do. And you're, you're accepting and welcoming from an old friendship perspective, but you're also like, hey, I got to do the things I got to do. And so f- now I look back and I go, oh, whoa, you exist kind of in this, this neverland of between where you become a meme to people and the people that you belong with, that you've, you have this real sense of like, oh, I'm home with the, these are my, my peoples, like I'm one of them and, and they accept me. There's, this, there's a detachment or there's even just a vacancy of like, you're not actually attending because you're off doing other things. Mm. And I paid a price for that. And it's okay. It's just part of the journey. Well, it was incredible when you think about it, you know, the gold medal that you won in 2000 and uh, it was, I don't know how many Olympic golds were in Canada at the time for that Olympics. If you were the only one who was a doubles tennis or something, I'm not sure. And then uh, Daniel Legali, the wrestler who was just- Okay. But uh, it wasn't, in in terms of Canadian medals, it wasn't Canada's best um, performance. And, And I think you really stood out. I think it was day one or two of the Olympics and- Here's this 25-year-old young man who, you know, you weren't on the world stage previously. I think you'd had a couple of podiums maybe at World Cups or something. I think you'd started to you'd started to sort of scratch the surface of what, you know, was possible. And here you are winning the biggest race and, and now you're thrust into society. I'll never forget that time where, like you said, Laura and I continued on having coffee in the morning and, you know, and here was I just trying to get my career back on track after feeling like it had disappeared after not getting to race that Olympic Games. And I was like, and then finally I was sort of, you know, winning the World Series and I was pretty focused on on, on that. And and then I do remember you almost coming back. I mean, you, you really had almost 6, 12, 18 months there where it was consuming for you. I, I mm-hmm. think, did you have lunch with the Prime Minister and or lunch with the Queen? I There was... Every every time you came back to sit with us, you're like, oh, I just got back from lunch with the Queen and I had a meeting with the Prime Minister. I was like, here's a 25-year-old guy that suddenly people are asking him his world opinion on politics. And uh, I don't know, it, there was an awful lot for a, a young man to take on that I don't think most people understand what can happen when when fame really does hit you like it did. Yeah, I think actually the strangest thing is that it ends up being something that, and we're, you know, it, it, you, you're, we're still talking about 20 years later mm. because it's so distinct, you know, it's like such a defining moment. So it becomes this strange thing that you kind of keep, I just went through these, <laughs> I didn't mean to say it like that, but I was just inducted into the hall, the Olympic hall of fame. And it was a very strange experience because you're being celebrated again for something that you've been celebrated for, for 20 years. Mm. So for the people that are celebrating and often that might be the first time they thought about it in years and years and years and years and years, you know, and they're like, this is really exciting. This is like, oh man, I, I remember where I was. But for me, I'm like, oh man, I've been like reliving the story over and over. Mm. And mm. It becomes a this, you have, I actually have a strange, almost resentment to it. Mm-hmm. This funny kind of like, oh my God, I've told this story so many times. I'm like, yeah, oh, that's, that's the only person you are now. This is who you are. But I think in fairness to some of those, awards um i do think you know in terms of how it affected your life is one way to look at it but i think the empowerment you gave to the youth especially but even the older canadians the the there's something that you you give through sport and being on the national stage that is very hard to measure and i think when you receive these awards 20 years later i think to maybe acknowledge the fact that 
you've been, whether you've met these people or not, you've been somewhat of a mentor, somewhat of someone who's living a life with really significant purpose that is helping and inspiring them to perhaps live their better selves. You know, and I think it's hard sometimes to see yourself as a role model or, or to to see the impact that you're actually having. You know, I've met people down here in Florida, the Canadians that, you know, fly down to to avoid the winter. And, you know, if I drop your name, they'll say, oh, yeah, Simon, he's, he's just a great personality of Canadian sport. And not many of them mention the the gold medal. They they mention you as, um, and they all bright up, and they're all. You can see the energy that you created in their household twenty years ago, and even two thousand and eight, and then onwards as you, as you've been a spokesperson, and you're a great speaker. So I think, in fairness to some of these awards, and when you get put up, I don't think it's entirely about you just and a gold medal. I think it's what you've done afterwards because. For every great champion gold medalist is a gold medalist who's a complete disaster that nobody wants to be around. Yeah. So it's it's been the way you've carried yourself beyond simply winning a gold medal. So I do think you've got to give yourself a little bit of a Oh, I you appreciate know, that. I appreciate yeah. it. I, I think it's just that's a reality of it. And you're absolutely right. It's I've mm. had wonderful stories of people and I remember my own inspirations for those people who would have been through similar things, whether it be Wayne Gretzky or Steve Nash or Clara Hughes, those, those, these iconic Canadians of sport that inspired us and then have gone through similar experiences mm. where they're repeating the same story. And in saying, and then, then you're right, like there's the, there's the positive and contributive aspect of it. And I'm very, I'm cognizant of that and, and grateful for that. But then there's also the other side of it where you're going like, oh man, but I'm immersed in my day to day. Like I've got to figure out how to get that, this thing done and that thing off the ground and that th- other thing fixed and you're kind of like oh my goodness my my life just is carrying on and and i'm stuck talking about this thing that happened 20 <laughs> <laughs> i know i i think it's almost you you get to articulate it maybe different ways <laughs> yeah, totally you're trying to figure out the other thing is we have to acknowledge is also the stories change you know they oh. they they mesh into one another i noticed this with i would tell used to tell this story about um beijing olympics being in the green, in the, in the athlete tent being called out to the start line. And we had this plan with the ice vests and Joel was very specific, like don't take your ice vest off, stick to the plan, stick to the plan. He's fan. It's why he's such a successful coach to this day, because he so has such great belief in what he does and he, and he sticks to the plan. And all these athletes were all, you know, panicking and taking off their ice vests and getting out and warming up in what was 30 plus degrees. And as I've told the story over the years, the number of people in that room has slowly whittled down to it just being Jan Ferdino, myself, Bevan Doherty, and uh, Javier Gomez. And I honestly and truly, for years later, remembered it like that. Like, it was just the four of us in some sort of, like, epic Western shootout. And then years later, Joel was like, no, man, there was, like, 20 people in that room. <laughs> I was like, I had to fill back in my memory. Uh... Back in the room, I was like, oh. Isn't memory this malleable, awful, wonderful, ridiculous thing? <laughs> well, I can't tell you how many times I've told the story when, you know, you won the gold medal in Sydney. And it was before 9-11, so things were a bit looser around the Olympics. But the way I tell the story was here I was standing in the in the stands and I'm, I'm waving a tiny little Canadian flag, you know, sitting on the Australian, you know, the Sydney Opera House steps, you know, a mile, two miles from where I grew up and, and uh, feeling a little bit bitter towards Australia, not being able to race, but really 
you know, my story delivers, you know, basically, you know, and, and Simon wins the gold medal and then he charges up and he's on the top step of the dais and then he jumps off and runs over to me and puts a gold medal around my neck and says, this is yours. And that's a very simplified version in the sense that you came over to the crowd and, you know, <laughs> there was a whole lot of people there. But the way yeah. I tell the story, it was like, yes, you, you do tend to maybe get, move, well, remove some of the details a little bit, you know, and, uh, but yeah, I get it. You've got to, in order for people to really appreciate what you're trying to say, sometimes I, I do think to just, it is a better story if you just say yarn, Bevan. I can avoid the word embellish. <laughs> embellish. <laughs> well, it's the truth. It's no, just- I know. I totally right. It's just, <laughs> works. it's just fun. And now I try and remember that. Like, oh, wait a minute. I got to, it's important for ourselves as individuals to remember, though, that we have all these stories and that they have that they're the intensity and the emotion oh, of them of course you're so relevant but actually you know who knows what the truth is <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to touch on a little bit about your training and i know you've retired a few years just as i have but just for you know a lot of the guys listening um just to give them some takeaways that they might be able to um help their own sort of purpose and career that they, they've got so first thing I want to talk about is your, your sleep and recovery. When, when you were, let's say, between that 2000 and you know 2012 type block that was really your most intense part of your, your career, what did that look like for you in terms of just sleep and recovery? Were you strong routine or was there a certain amount of sleep you had to have? Uh, I mean, it changed halfway through that or a little later than because we had uh, in 2007, we had Pippa and, and sleep went out the window with the young kid. Um, but I was I was able to sleep in hilarious. You know, I, I think you remember like me falling asleep in airport lineups and <laughs> all these different like in the That's car and on the flight. And so, if I had one ability, um, it would be to to recover. Yeah. Um, and I also, but I also I didn't. I trained as much as I could. I very much st- stuck to that philosophy of make my average days better. I was I I had I understood that having one-off epic days or having a block of epic training followed by a huge lull in training to compensate for the fact that you'd overdone it um, wasn't wasn't actually productive. And so I remember very much I'd hear the, the stats around what other people are training, how much they trained, how many hours they put in. And then Mike, I, I just plugged away at it. I had good coaches who, who gave me consistent training it was consistency trump you know fitness trumps all consistency trumps all and we were very patient about our progressions and you and i had this expression didn't we we had first gear second gear you know we would talk about what season it was it was mm-hmm. in in what people might call base season we would call it oh, yeah, it's first gear like don't get out of first gear right now okay you can you know as the season's coming a little bit more we can get into second and third gear but don't go touch that fourth gear and that kind of patient approach and very systematic approach to it and and I, I come to think of it like a live to fight another day was have a training session. Maybe it didn't go particularly well. Maybe it went great, but it wasn't, it, it didn't live till the next day. You know, the next day was a new day and you just started afresh. So you, it was short celebrations and, and, uh, and it was short, uh, you know, bemoanments of what had just happened. And that was really the marker of my training. I didn't, miss any time through did not i didn't have any non-traumatic injuries uh trauma but you know i, I had a couple of crashes etc broken bones but i didn't miss any training because of sore shoulders or you know 
mm. uh, torn ligaments or whatever it was, I, I, I was able to just keep plugging away. And I think that that real like pound the rock one, one block at a time and always putting one more there, whereas others might be putting two at once and then three fall down. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, that comes through maturity, a lot of that. I think all of us are kind of bullet of gates when we're in our 20s and then in our 30s, we start to realize, hang on, if I can just keep turning up every day, it'll yeah. look after itself and squeeze when I'm meant to squeeze, but, you know, pull back when I've got to pull back. And a quick side story, <laughs> you're talking about your sleep and I think you're, you haven't you been diagnosed as one, one step away from being a narcolip? My sister, she's not going to appreciate me sharing that, but my sister <laughs> is definitely the sleeper in the family. But oh, I have- I'll, ne- I'll never forget when you're like, Greg, let's let's travel to, I don't know, we were going to Minnesota from Victoria or something. Let, let's fly together. I'm like, okay. And then we're in the uh, lining up to baggage check-in and there you are sleeping with your bag, you know, sleeping on the ground with your head on your bag and I'm having to shuffle you forward as the, as the line moves forward. And then we hop on the plane and as soon as they start to compressurize the, the cabin, immediately you pass out and you don't wake up for the three or so hour flights later. I'm like, what's the yeah. point of traveling with you? <laughs> oh, waste of time. I don't think we traveled much together after that. No, we did. That's so funny. <laughs> so what about with nutrition? Did you have any anything special that you do with nutrition or you, you know? With- um, I had a funny experience in grade 11 or grade 12. I'm living by myself. Um, so I am studying nutrition because I want to learn everything I can about triathlon. And I thought, well, I, if, if low fat is good, then no fat must be better. So <laughs> absolutely all fat out of my diet and that obviously backfires considerably. And then began to, you know, that passion for learning and then asking questions. And I, I definitely marked a career of asking, there'd be a lot of athletes. I think Hamish Carter once was like, I can't believe you don't know the answer to this. It was ridiculous. You know, this, rudimentary question i'm asking him and i said no no man i know my answer to it but i don't know your answer to it so i'm willing to play ignorant and ask because i my i'm willing to put my ego aside and, and have you, him walk away going like this guy's an idiot he doesn't know the basics oh, and by I'm, the way hey, hamish carter was the 2004 olympic gold medalist there you go, yeah, good yeah, mate yeah. sorry to interrupt great friend of ours and, yeah, and yeah. it's so much beyond just as an athlete just as a person what an exceptional human being and and uh yeah, I just I was able to ask those questions. So for nutrition, uh, I certainly went through ups and downs, and I went, I definitely followed some of the sillier paths at times. Um, and I look back at some of the supplementation now, and I go, oh my goodness, like just ignorance, just absolute ignorance when it came to supplementation and such. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think I followed a pretty good routine of quality food, um, uh, not a you know not obsessive. I did go through um a couple phases where i was trying to get as skinny as possible and learn the hard way that that doesn't work um we all did that (laughs) yeah and i and it becomes it's amazing how your psychology changes i remember just i remember just being like quite a looking literally looking in the mirror and thinking oh man i'm 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 too big i'm too Mm -hmm. you know i'm too bulky (laughs) yeah no (laughs) it's true the skinniest little dude and i'm like oh man i look back at photos now I, i looked back at one and um 2010 or 11 and and i remember my psychology like you said i remember thinking i'm i'm fat no i mean okay fat's a bit dramatic but it'd be good if i could really lean up like my competition are all lean yeah. and then i looked at this photo that was in one of the magazines i'm like it's just ribs and a few muscles i'm like dude you were 
And that's where you start to think, wow, how close were we to, well, I mean, eating disorders and things maybe is a bit dramatic, but we definitely overanalyzed ourselves far probably more than we needed to. But, but that, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what you, you're on the race course trying to be the very, very best that you can be. And, you know, in order to win a, a big race, everything matters. And, um, but it is funny to look back now at some of those photos, how skinny we were. We were also of an era when the technology wasn't working, you know, like <laughs> I, I do this, this technology showcase now with four eyes. So they're the premier power meter strain gauge manufacturer in the world for cycling. Now they make the most power meters and Interesting. They're the most precise, et cetera, et cetera. And the story we go and tell is like when I was training, the technology pretended to work, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. How many times? Remember how many times we sit at Lockside Trail and be like, someone be waiting for their SRM to calibrate. <laughs> and now they make obviously an incredible product today, and they they were pioneers in it. But back then, like your coach might literally say to you, "Whoa, like the power was really off today. You you have been looking a little sick." And it turned out that you just didn't calibrate it properly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your training would change for. Oh, yeah, I have been. I've been really feeling rough. Yeah. And so, and then all of that data, we would collect it all and it never went anywhere. It would just mm. kind of go into these fo- these obscure files that you couldn't even find and, mm. and they wouldn't work. It wouldn't download. The battery would die. The memory would be tapped out. And so we pretended to have this technology that worked. And at the time we would say, oh, this is fantastic. And in the back of my mind, I think the elephant in the room for everybody was like, I haven't looked at any of that stuff in a while because I don't actually really trust it. No. Now, though, it's incredible to see like mm. big, how big data and all of the technology is involved in this. I mean, it's in it to say that it's overwhelming. It's no longer overwhelming. They have been able to all these different technology companies have been able to distill it down so that I can go on Strava and find out a fitness score that actually has some sort of meaning to it. There's some sort of backup to it that is just a everyday participant who just wants to play soccer and, and paddle his board I can have some sort of quantifiable data to say like that actually works. It doesn't take all my time up to download and filter it through. And so our era in particular in nutrition, I mean, we were just so naive and, but we all had no real tools to analyze or to quantify what we were doing. So athletes that today benefit tremendously from the technology us being guinea pigs with being told uh, that we suck one day and we're good the next even though it's the same performance (laughs) oh so what you're saying is that power meter is 20 percent off like that's not super helpful thanks no isn't it amazing how far we've come with a lot of that technology and even you know the the garments and you know yeah we're talking about cameras now that will uh, iPhone or whatever it would be cameras, cell phone cameras that will be able to, with a step spectrometer, will be able to look at your food and tell you what the composition of is it uh, of it is based on the light reflecting off it. I mean, it's ridiculous, but wow, you now have so much technology and the actually ability to distill it down to meaningful data because it's one thing to have the data; it's a, it's another thing to be able to do something with it. And that's what we've, we've entered into that era now of, of meaningful data that can make a tangible difference. Do you think it, in terms of sport, and this is something I've always thought about, one thing I've loved about sport is the emotional, mental kind of state of sport and the effects that 
one athlete can have over another in sort of creating a result. And, and, and sometimes I look at when we have so much data and so much testing and so much science, do you think it potentially could detract from sport in the sense that we almost know the result before it's going to happen? Yeah, of course. But I guess that's why they play the game, right? Because those things still happen where the, the, that, the, the unpredictable, we, we play because we all know that at the end of the day, the New England Patriots can be 17-0 and 0 and lose in the Super Bowl. And we all know like that athlete that can show up on that day and then can't handle it and another athlete pops up and does it. And mm. so that's yeah. the beauty of it. I mean, we, we are in the eSports generation now and it's going to be interesting to see. It will continuously get, they'll be able to predict more and more accurately down to just, you know, very fine-tuned analysis of what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, we all know that there's that human aspect to it. And that's mm. the that's why you play the game. Yeah, that's true. So long as we can keep that alive, I think it, it, it works great. But um, what about when you when you look back at the amount of body work that you got? Were you were you somebody who kind of got a massage every day and chiropractic and, and required a lot of work? Or did you do a lot of work, you know, just rollers and things on yourself? Um. Yeah, I had a quite a lot of massage that turned into just long sleep sessions. <laughs> um, and that was certainly um, beneficial. Um, I didn't do much physiotherapy. Um, I didn't stretch particularly, um, but I did walk a lot and I did have a good sense of, I had, I have tremendous proprioception. So I know how I relate to the space around me. Um, and so I think that that meant that I had a good sense of, you know, when an injury might be a potential was there or when I was out of my comfort zone in something, I was able to define that or to be very aware of that. Mm. And so while I didn't have, uh, I did, I mean, on, as a relative to other people, I did have a lot of body work done and, and like, uh, support in that manner, whether it's physiotherapy or massage or Cairo, whatever it was. Um, I wasn't so, so dependent on it because I think I had uh, resiliency or a, like a, I, I had a, a structure in my, my body, a structure from playing so many different sports that I was, I wasn't very, I wasn't fragile. I think, uh, I think biomechanically you were a very sound um, runner. And yeah. and like Laura, my wife Laura, I think you had a very good sense of feel, and yeah. and so both both of you biomechanically are very sound. I, I'm complete opposite. I'm a bull at a gate, and <laughs> I just you know I, I I think a lack of patience probably is why I was uh, you know just full steam ahead and, and would break down. But one thing I kind of always noticed with Laura was you know she it was almost a gift and a curse at the same time. It was like her sense of feel was so good that she could make sure her pinky was in the right place when she was entering her hand in the water for the the most perfect you know swim technique that i think i've ever seen and but it was also a curse in the sense that any little anything that felt slightly off would almost she would feel it and mm. and sometimes you know would make things so she couldn't train or she she was very reactive to her training in that way because she would notice things more often and and uh I, I was completely opposite to some degree. I mean, I didn't have a terrible sense of feel, but I was always tending to, I didn't feel a lot. Um, and I loved just 
being on the knife's edge. That was where I, I loved to live and that, that kind of enjoying the pain and then it would really just take the body breaking down fully for me to stop doing it. And so it was kind of I lived on that, you know, you, you mentioned earlier how consistent training was key and, and I, I, I look back and think, well, you know, I could have been a lot more consistent had I not been so aggressive with, with my working out and I required yeah. a lot of body work because of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, on reflection, that's something I did learn. I would watch you, this unbridled, like, and you just loved going hard, going more, doing an extra session. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome to watch and to be around. But it also, at times, I would be able to, I, because I was one step out of it, I'd be able to go, oh, whoa, you just overdid it, didn't you? <laughs> you, were, you know, I think you're, you're, you're just alluded to it, didn't you? Absolutely. I had the advantage of being able to watch this person be so motivated and so driven that sometimes you, you, yeah, like, like you just said, you, you, you would push so hard that you go, you go, well, if some is good, more is better. Mm-hmm. And then I would sit back and go, Oh, oh. like, as you just said, you, you, sometimes you go too far and then you, you'd have to pay the price for it. So mm. yeah, that's true. I mean, Laura, that was, you're right. And what, what a swim stroke, what an athlete, um, and then the curse of that is that you have this ability to analyze and, and know what's going on, and then you get almost some paralysis through analysis. That's true. So along the way, were you getting much sort of these days, you know, they can test for so much with blood work and and can watch sort of general health. You know, did you ever have to do a lot of blood work or watch your general health? Did you get sick very often? Uh, I didn't get sick very often, but I had very rudimentary analysis of blood and such. I mean, I think, in fact, the number of times I think we were, we were misinformed on what was going on or because we thought, well, like, well, we got that blood test or this or that, and that must be right. And then you'd learn again, you'd learn later, like, oh, oops, <laughs> you, there was a whole bunch of variables you didn't account for. Um, and so I didn't, um, I certainly think with the modern day medical support that the athletes have, from just a health perspective, it would be a lot better. Mm. Um, it's one of the things I'm kind of surprised about that hasn't that never happened was you have an objective measure with an athlete like myself where you can say, okay, well, like at this point in time, you're near at or near the pinnacle of your sport. Therefore, we can objectively say like we can set one end of the extreme of the ben- to benchmark mm-hmm. health trajectory or whatever markers we're looking for. And there was none of that follow-up. No. It was very. I found that very odd. Like I left sport, and there was absolutely zero follow up. There was nobody set stopped and said, "Hey, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to see where an elite athlete ends up with their health markers?" You know, anonymously, but we get to we do we know uh, by some objective measure what level they got to, and therefore we can kind of use this as our spectrum. And I think that that's been a real letdown. Uh, in the system, I, I I don't really understand why it would be that way. I I, I sort of take it personally. <laughs> well, so. I I think things are changing. I think like like you said, I think a lot of these blood tests and all sorts of things are changing, and they're able to see where athletes are and 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 what they're doing. And one, one thing for me, I don't know how you felt, but when I retired, I um I actually stopped doing everything for about three to four months and until I, I looked in in a g-star store changing room and saw how fat i was getting i was like oh geez i better do something but, but basically i i realized after about a year or two i could sense in myself that 
my mood had changed. My testosterone wasn't as high. I didn't feel as good about myself that almost like by retiring and pushing so hard for, you know, 25 plus years and then not going quite cold turkey, but really getting to the point where I maybe work out for 45 minutes to an hour each day. I realized that my body, everything let go. It was like a mental, emotional, physical, just kind of like release. And I, I, I was really curious, a bit like what you're saying. I would have loved to have seen what an athlete looks like at retirement and then again a year or two later. And I think, um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of athletes once they've retired, they've even had heart issues. Um, I, I can't remember. There, there's a couple of them that have had it. And I think in our sport and in an endurance sport where you're really pushing hard, I'm surprised we don't monitor throughout the career and then also, you know, after retirement as well. Yeah, that's that's a big the miss there for myself too. I feel like I'm for my own personal information of understanding my long-term health trajectory. Mm. Um, and that's certainly now why I try and monitor a little bit of it. I try and take some data that I'm not looking at on a day-to-day basis. Although I want to know if I ran 10 K in a soccer game each time I play, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I, I want to see over a long term where, where things are headed, you know, what's the general trend. Um, well, that, and then that's I think it. back to what you said, like, it's such a blessing and a curse. You have this high capacity to exert energy, and then the curse is you need to exert a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So you get stuck in this thing where, like, half hours, you haven't even warmed up yet. <laughs> you know, now, now I really I work hard at It's been for quite a few years now, but there was a quite a few years where I worked out, you know, maybe three times a week for 30 minutes with a bunch of, you know, some soccer and da, 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 but nothing structured, nothing with any intention, no desire to race anybody. In fact, a lot of resentment around competition and the cost I paid for it Mm. and like a real denial that I was going to be competitive ever again. And I try and analyze it and think it was all these different things. And at the end of the day, I realized, oh, wow, I just, you know, my body type, my mentality and my capacity would be that guy back in the day you just send out all day. You'd say, okay, like the sun is rising, go get something and come back when you got it late in the day. And I would have capacity just like you, you know, we yeah, just yeah. Out there all day. And then now I like run around doing all these errands and all these things that are the day-to-day responsibilities, the two to two bloody bad of, you know, that you've got responsibilities to so take care of them and that you pay the cost because you can't, how could you ever justify in your life working out six hours a day right now? Mm. So, um, yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with it to this day. I, I, I must admit, I look back and like now I'm just trying to get my running back going again. I, I've been going about two weeks and it's absolute murder. And uh, it's it's extraordinary to look back and go, wow, isn't it amazing what we did on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decadely basis of what we put the body through. I, you know, for me right now, I'm, I'm up to running 5K. And when I was probably at my best around that sort of 2011, you know, 2006 to 2011, I'd call a day off was I'd do a 10K run and a 2K swim was a day off. And the idea of doing a day off now, it's just absolutely just incredible. And I, I kind of laugh about, you know, some of the days that we did and especially doing some of the 70.3, the long intense days. And I, I just look back and go, it would have been great to just see what was going on in the body because now I couldn't go anywhere near any of that kind of work. 
Yeah, those full days, I'm moving back towards that now. I have this desire, I can feel it building in me mm. to to be out all day and build adventures, whether they're odyssey adventures uh, of, you know, uh, swim to here, run to there, paddle to there, ride to there. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily need any competition in it. I get my competition from over 35's Vancouver Island Soccer League B Division. <laughs> 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 when we lost yesterday it was really horrific um but i get so i get my competition from that but i do feel or need to whether it's necessity i don't you know it's probably it's just necessity i'm really now committed to and have been for a while now to i feel like sometimes i'm like oh man i did all that training back then so that i could do the things i do now and that involves big long excursions mm-hmm. days out do you think you'll ever get back into a triathlon? Um, you know, it's funny. I saw the um, advertisement or the story about Canada Man. It's a, it's an iron distance race uh, at the beginning of July in Mont-Tremblant or in, somewhere in Quebec, and it's got a great story to it. And I was, I, I could feel myself going like, that'd be fun. I could go mm. train for that, but I wouldn't want to compete at it. I would literally just want to go make my way from the start line to the finish line and if a bunch of friends wanted to do it with me, I'd go and do it. So never in triathlon I do I see I will who knows, but any kind of competition. But I could see that in other aspects. I get when I watch paddling races and, and or mar- ultra marathon type stuff, I get a I certainly the pilot light I can feel it flicker. Um so we'll see. We'll see, we'll see. No, I'm a bit the same. I I think I've you know, with a couple of little ones, I'm kind of putting on hold any kind of great big competition but i I actually wouldn't mind getting back and doing a i don't know i was thinking the hawaii 70.3 which i did once which was a a beautiful race you know and there's a competitive side to me still that loves that i like i said i it's even it's more uh, i i don't know if punishment's the right word but i i love to you know if i ride the bike in the garage i ride as hard as i can Mm -hmm. i I'm, I've never been one that enjoys just going for a ride. I like I put in the biggest gear I can and just munch away at it, and and it's a bit the same with running. And it's a bit of that mentality that I still have, call it an illness, if you will. But I do think I I can see myself maybe when I turn fifty, which is two years off, and that would be five or six years out from retirement. So I kind of feel like that's a fair amount of time. Um, but I don't know. I think if I did a mountain, I wouldn't mind doing one of those epic mountain bike stage races, you know, the Swiss I'll Epic. Or, that be, I know that'd be fun. Let's do BC bike races. Hey, why don't we do that one? We'll do BC together. All right. I'll count me in. Right. We'll go find Peter Reed. We'll pull him out. He's done it. We'll get him All to right. lead us through. Perfect. We'll do the BC. I know a few people have done the Swiss Epic, which is nice because you stay in nice hotels and stuff. I don't want to do the whole camp. Colorado gravel grind too that's got to be on the list. So, okay. Please count me in. <laughs> this has been a very useful conversation. We're mapping out our new our future careers. I love it. <laughs> and a Super League comeback, right? Yeah, and a Super League, yeah, veterans comeback. <laughs> I'll talk about that for just a moment. I know I, I, I not to deviate too far, but what, what tip of the hat to Chris McCormick and his crew, eh? What oh. an incredible addition to our sport. Well, you know, we both went through it in the 90s in Australia. And when you look at all the careers that were made for athletes that came through that, series and then went on to become you know olympic champions and world champions and it, it really is any any young guy that's not or girl that's not on that start line is absolutely crazy um i think it's the most intense pure form of racing that you can get and if you want to 
be successful at, at triathlon in general. I think you're crazy not to be there if you're a professional. And then I think the way that he's putting it on with the live um, telecasting online and uh, and the way the it's just incredible all around. Exactly like you said, hats oh, off to him. I think he's uh, elite age groupers all the way down to just new participants. Yeah, they, that's true. They can solve, they've just sat down with the. It's like they stole the suggestion box. And then they just went through and did all. They were like, oh, let's do this, 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 and this. So, yeah, yeah tip of the hat. It's just so fun to watch, and it's great to see our sport do that. You know what I also yeah. love is remember when we were going through, there was a real conflict with the Grand Prix versus the ITU, and he sat down with the ITU and made sure there was no conflict, that the athlete, that they could actually work together Yes. to put something together for the athlete. I Like the whole calendar is designed, you know, we, he doesn't have a race now until post-Olympics because he mm-hmm. doesn't want – the athletes to be detracted or just the whole the whole show is is like you said he's he's taken what worked in the 90s and what didn't work he's he's gotten rid of and he's cleaned it up and polished it and and now you've got this series for for these athletes which is incredible to watch it really is katie's a ferris i mean she's awesome it's awesome to watch them so vincent louis henry schumann the whole crew it's just Awesome. Look at and that young French girl, uh, Cassandra Bogrand yeah. or whatever. I mean, <laughs> so fast. Yeah, you know, she's starting her career with this stuff, and you know where she's going to go because of it. It's fantastic. Okay, so I just want to quickly uh, touch on a couple more things, just with you. When we, when you were, one of the things that I talk about um, for me is sort of within my career. Up until about two thousand and six, I had a ten percent winning rate, and from sort of twenty seven to twenty eleven, twenty twelve, I was able to change that to over fifty percent. And most of that for me was, I really, really worked hard on my visualizing and my mental strategies. And I'm curious as to what kind of things, you know, you win an Olympic gold medal. That's not just physical. You, you, you then back that up with a, a silver medal. That's not just physical. What were the kind of things that you were doing that helped and allowed you to have performances like that? Uh, reading fiction. <laughs> um, I really think that's funny. I joked about this before, but I I don't know. I, I, I high capacity to visualize and orchestrate and create outcome. It's not about manifestation as much as it's about just having in your mind's eye a clear image of what will happen. You're you're not choosing the direction you're going to go. You're just choosing the direction which you're going to error. You can't you can't say exactly what's going to happen, but you can choose the direction which you're going to error. And that attribute, that ability to, you know, a net a, a Netflix athlete needs everything to be cast for them. Uh, someone who writes or reads fiction knows how to illustrate those images in their mind's eye before they, so that when that appears. When that opportunity presents itself, they've seen you know every outcome plus one. Uh, that's Yan's attribute. That's Daniela Reef's attribute. That's Nicola Spears' attribute. That's Alistair Brownlee's attribute. When you talk to people about Alistair, and when Rio was announced as the Olympics, he, they they the story at the at their clubhouse is that he he said, "Oh, okay, well, this is how the race is going to unfold. This, this, that, 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 then this." And for whatever many years later, it was this exactly how he said it. And I just think that an athlete like Alistair, an athlete like Ian or Daniela, they have an ability to see things that in their mind's eye to, to create the imagery 
and then execute on that. And then in the end, they see it N plus one, you know, one more time than anybody else. They just see all the different iterations of what could happen and would happen, what they want to happen. Mm. And I think that's, I participated in that. I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons as a kid and was able to, you know, illustrate and create all of these images of the, you know, where we, where the characters were and what they were doing and what the world looked like, and then carried that ability on into my career to say, oh, okay, so what's that race like? Oh, okay, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this. What does that look like? Let's go visualize it. Let's go see it. And then whether I was discussing it with my coach or my training partners or just internally, it was a constant iteration of if this, then that. Okay, well, if this, then that, then that, then that. And mm-hmm. I would sit and work and work and work at that, and much in the same way you did and Laura did and uh, other successful athletes um, that were able to win races. We're not having those races dictated to them, as in a Netflix cast for them. Mm-hmm. They wrote the script, then they then they executed on it. And I think that that, that was a, an ability I had and, and continue to try and work at as best I'm able. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think it really is a creative genius to some degree that can visualize and, and and see something happening before it's happened. And you mentioned Laura, and I, like you, found visualizing fairly easy. Um, it was sort of in 06, 07 when I really decided to make it a part of my daily rituals. And I, I say I, I had two, two forms of visualizing. One was static and the other one was physical and the two differences was static would be i'd be on the massage table and i'd I'd step through an event and and it'd be very much a clear thinking and the physical one would be when i'm i'm driving to maybe do a run workout or whatever i'd be choosing the race i'd be choosing the players that are going to be in the race in the main competition and i'll be i'd be then throughout the training workout i'd be adjusting on the go and you know an example would be if i start the run and my legs are still pretty flat well, then I changed the commentator in my head to say, look, that was the most brutal bike in the world and everybody's legs are flat. So I changed it to the positive. And then every, after every repeat, you know, I, I changed the positions. And so it was a very physical way of visualizing compared to the, the static way of visualizing. It's, um, not a, it's not passive. You're not just there at the workout getting mundanely doing it. You're like immersed in, in the mm-hmm. scenarios that you're trying to orchestrate. Yeah. I'll never forget racing uh, Minneapolis one time and I'd visualized um, the great Peter Robinson who, uh, who won three world titles in, in our sport of triathlon and a couple of silvers. And he had an uncanny way, as you know, to run off the front with big surges one after the other. And I studied him and, and realized that he was surging often three times and I was wondering if he had a fourth. And that three often got him away from the pack and he'd go on to win. And I'd visualized it so many times and I, I, I don't know, maybe you even you even won the race. I can't remember. Anyway, he surged once and away he went. I ran back up to him as I did in my visualizing and then he surged again and then he surged again on the third time. And then I was like, just as my visualizing and what I've been doing in training, now I'm going to give him the fourth one that he's not going to be ready for and I ran over the top of him. And when we crossed the line, I don't think I'd even won the race, but I was so excited that something that had been so real in my mind for so, so long in terms of visualizing, it just happened, you know, that I'm like, you have no idea, Robbo, I've been visualizing that for years, you know, and finally I got my chance and it was fantastic. He's like, what? <laughs> but it was like, you know, when you have that incredible sense that you've, you've already lived it 
and then it actually physically happens. It was, uh, yeah. it was truly tremendous. What, um, an, what a competitor and what a great human being. Eh? Yeah, he's, a good, he's a good man. And um, yeah, the thing that I do for Laura, because Laura didn't actually find visualizing very easy, is um, we'd often, we'd go for runs together and I'd do her key workouts, you know, maybe the day after my key workout and I'd run next to her and then I'd commentate. And so I'd paint the scenes, you know, if we're getting ready for Beijing Olympics or whatever it is, you know, the crowd, the way we are, the other athletes. And then I'd start commentating and, you know, be like, oh, and here comes Laura Bennett, you know, into the stadium, stand up America, blah, blah. And she'd just start flying. And so she needed a little bit more outside assistance for her, for her visualizing, but it did work when we, when we got it right. Um, so it's just different ways of doing it, I guess, you know, and like you said, I think some athletes are very natural at doing it like yourself, you know, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or <laughs> whatever it is. It's yeah. true. I mean, we've, but we've come into a culture now where everything is done for us. You know, the technology exists too, that I don't need to go and illustrate in my mind's eye, those things, cause they've already been done and I can, play a game that you know i can watch a movie that already has it so mm. it's being able to like retract yourself back and go back to the basics that's such a beautiful image like you running beside laura commentating <laughs> it is that's such a beautiful i can see you guys at elk lake i can see you out there on the boulder flatlands yeah. um, i can see you there in noosa doing it and that's just a, as a friend as someone who just has such tremendous admiration for you two as people that's such a beautiful image of this mm. team working together to do it. Um, that's really, that's, that's quite something. Thanks mate. Yeah. We're, we're pretty fortunate to have found each other. Um, you got any gear recommendations for guys that might be in the sport? Any, any products that you, you know, nutritionally or recovery or swim bike run or anything that you think that people should be looking into and, and adding to their, their gear? Uh, you know, it's funny. I've been so enjoyed over the last many years doing 0, 0.0 sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> zero it doesn't have to be about sponsorship it's more about it no sorry i mean as in now i i feel like i can talk about it in such an authentic manner yeah yeah i guess what you mean yeah you don't have to you know i don't have to tell you that 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 cardboard cereal is good for you (laughs) (laughs) so um i will say if i i just did a triathlon clinic back east with barry and um uh, so I'll go through what we said there. So for swimming, it was uh, those aquasphere. I think they're those blue fins, the molded fins. Mm. They don't give much propulsion, but they give a little buoyancy. It means you can set up your stroke really well. Um, I found those to be super effective. Um, a front-facing snorkel I found to be very effective. So I was able to concentrate my stroke without the breath and then build that back in. I also found it very peaceful. Mm. Um, on the bike, obviously there's the power meters and the smart trainers and all those things, and they're all available now and they're accessible. That technology is being democratized to the point where it's, it's feasible for somebody who's just trying out the sport to try it out. You know, it's not, I'm not saying it's, 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 uh, cheap, but it's, it is affordable. Mm. Um, and in the run, I mean, I've never tried the the, the one or two or four thirty percent shoes, whatever they're called. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get well, a pair cheap if I can. They look amazing. Totally, me too. I Hoka's have saved me. I, I have I've gone through a couple pairs of those. I use those. Uh, I go back and forth. I go. I have a couple pair of Hoka that are really like structured, and I go my hikes on, and I do my recovery mm-hmm. stuff. But I also have. A, a separate set of shoes that are all just like basic bare minimum, mm-hmm. you know, 
uh, as thin as possible is because I want my feet to, to, I don't want my Achilles to shorten. I don't want the, to become too fragile with my feet, but I also want to support them. So um, I will honestly say, and I, I come back to this a lot with people now is that stand up paddling is such a secret weapon. Your, your proprioception is so important to your general well being, And then your athletic performance, if, if that's what your goal is. And, there's it's such a unique environment i mean you have an unwinding effect because of the the opposite you know you've got this this you're standing on water so as something that you may have before stretched or massaged it has an unwinding effect you have a paddle in your hand this instrument that you can articulate or temperate your the amount of effort you put in um i go out there i do a lot of nasal breathing i i didn't realize that that wasn't something that was really common for people. In fact, when we do these clinics, people are just looking at me like I'm from another planet when I say, breathe through your nose. Um, and I will say, so I'll come back to that. If any one little thing, if this whole interview got caught, chopped down to one little thing, it would be um, a, a propriety of breath is everything. You know, the, in every Western you've ever seen, the one guy flinches and the other one shoots him. It's, it's maintaining propriety of one's breath. And that nasal breath comes all the way back to, say you have an injury, You've got a sore calf, uh, a, a hurt hamstring, uh, whatever it might be, the ocean or the or even a pool or the lake, wherever it is, on a stand-up paddle board, not for the effort of it, not for the workout, just as a, you know, physio. I want to make a sign that says physio not working, <laughs> try paddling. Mm. Um, that would be something I would say for people who struggled, want to, you know, bump themselves out of a plateau, out of a rut, mm-hmm. would be to say, try a bit of paddling, get a small paddle. It's a lot like riding in a smaller gear. You don't want to grind around in a big gear unless you're Greg Bennett. And then, uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, those would be the things. And then I do think, I do support this idea. Four Eyes is a company I invested in uh, a decade ago and they came up with a heart rate strap that doesn't need a watch to be present. So it has internal memory. So you don't have to be constantly looking or monitoring it visually but it's actually to keeping the data for you and at the time i didn't really understand it i was like why would anyone want that and now i realize oh whoa wait a minute you can take your biometric data and not necessarily be feeding it to a watch that you're constantly monitoring but that goes into a system a filing system or a data bank that then gives you a long-term trajectory of your health and speaks to this idea that i like of being coached by your 70 year old self which is to say that I feel like my 70 year old self has a right to a healthy body, has right to a good knees. And so what, what and is that? What is it? Where do they find? What is it? Four eyes? You said four eyes. Yeah. Four I, 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 I.com. They're the most unapologetic group of wonderful nerdy engineers. <laughs> four I, 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 like the letter I. I. Yeah. And Kip and Victoria and their crew are just, they brought dynasty. They brought accurate pedometers to the market when that was needed, they wrote the code for amp plus, which was the robust version of Bluetooth. And then they came out with a power meter that is accurate to 1% weighs seven grams and is the cheapest on the market. So they're disruptors by nature. They're Canadian. So I'm super proud of them. Uh, It's a neat thing to be, have been invested in and to be part of, and they're doing cool things. And I like that unapologetically as nerdy engineers no yeah foureyes.com yeah all right perfect we've got to check that out because i a lot of what i want in this show is for people to really 
take longevity seriously and our health, especially as we get older. You know, it's one thing to be talking about high performance sport and 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 high performers generally, but I think all of us are just trying to uh, optimize the years that we have left to some degree. Um, I don't think we all need to live forever, but I think the years that we have left, I think let's make sure we get the most out of them. So something like Four Eyes, just to have that kind of company and 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 those kind of tools you know, at our disposable is huge. Um, so yeah. Okay. Mate, it's been great chat. And what's, uh, 2012, 2020 got ready for you. Uh, geez, more paddling excursions, more kids, uh, soccer tournaments and field hockey games and, uh, equestrian rides and hikes in the Rockies. It's, uh, it's good. It's got lots of ups and downs and challenges. Uh, my partner Tamara and I have five daughters between us. So <laughs> we're all in the teenage years. It's <laughs> me sitting at the dinner table wondering what just happened. Um, but they're all great, wonderful human beings. Uh, it, we've got a great crew. Tamara's, you know, she's just such a terrific partner and we, we get up to, Lots of mischief and fun together, and so 2020 uh, will be more more of the same of uh, co-parenting with a with a terrific mother and friend and Jenny, and uh, and then living the day to day life uh, with Tamara and our five kids. <laughs> I hope we get to see you again. Uh, it's been a couple of years. I think Laura and I'd be keen to get back up to Victoria and see oh, you. Would- so you you're running your own um, stand up paddling company right so if people come to victoria you they could go for a paddle with you yeah so i I, we run an outdoor excursion company um we happen to love paddling but um it involves anything and all things so i've been to vietnam i was in vietnam in april leading a group of 60 cyclists with mr biker saigon (laughs) um through the backcountry oh it was incredible if you ever if you want to go on a trip if you're looking for a trip you're just saying you know i just gotta get out of here go to vietnam Go to uh, Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. Go look up Mr. Biker Saigon, and say and say hi, uh, Anthony or Timmy. Uh, say I, I want to go on a bike ride with you in the in the in the countryside of Vietnam and Da Nang and Hoi. Uh, what an incredible country! What an yeah. incredible food! What just the culture is so beautiful. Uh, so I do stuff like that. I take outdoor excursions. I I, ref- I know if people say to me, "What do I do these days?" I'm I'm involved in fellow fix mobile bike shops. I'm involved with Four Eyes. I'm involved with different ventures. But what I really actually love to do is just take people out on the ocean and go experience something. How do they gone. find you? Uh, SouthIslandSup.com. SouthIslandSup.com. Come South- from excursion. SouthIslandSup.com. Sup for stand up paddle boarding, I guess. I'm hoping Simon Lessing listens to this and comes for a paddle. <laughs> <laughs> so random, but that would be so fun. <laughs> and, and what kind of discount are you going to give people because they listen to this podcast? If you type in uh, GBBE, <laughs> I'll pick it for free. <laughs> All right. No, no, don't do that. You could have millions of people at your doorstep. You never know. So funny. How else if people um, – do you post – are you using social media much? Are you posting anything? Well, I really struggle with social media. I can't figure out how to not have it manage me. Mm-hmm. It feels like manufactured spontaneity for myself. That's my experience. With yeah, it. I don't – I get it. I, for other people, I understand I understand why they, they, they do it. I understand that it's a, it's a great place to express yourself. I really struggle with it. I don't – every time I say to myself, yeah, yeah, you know what, for my, our business, it's a good idea – and then I and I post one thing, and then I 
and then I put it away for six months again. So I, I think it's a useful tool for people that um, are needing to self-promote to some degree. I mean, I feel very fortunate that you and I both got to have most of our careers before it came on that we don't have to do it. I, I know most of the athletes that I know that are at the top of the world all are employing somebody to to even manage it and run it. Um, and, and, you know, I'll flick on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook maybe once in the morning just to have a quick look at what's going on. Um, but I also know that, you know, with this podcast show and, um, you know, trying to do a bit more speaking engagements and consulting, you know, it's worth it's an easy platform to, to get out there and self-promote a little bit and, I, I know with you, you know, you, your favorite thing is to be out there doing the stand-up paddling and I've, I've seen some of your imagery that you've put on your website, um, simonwhitfield.com, right? Um, yep. You know, it wouldn't hurt every now and then if maybe once every couple of weeks you just share some of those images. Stop being so selfish. I don't know. I like I said. I I do. I make this patches, badges, adventures is our Instagram for our our self violence up, and I uh, I just have fun with it. But it yeah. really, I have a temperamental uh, relationship with it because I I don't want to bring my phone everywhere. I get it. Well, stay on the line for a second, mate. I'm going to stop recording and and uh, we'll just wind up. Legend. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.